Looking to create wealth and income through high cash flowing real estate? Self-storage is the fastest growing and the newest real estate asset that has outperformed all others. What's its secret? I'm AJ Osborne, and with over a million square feet that we have built, acquired, expanded, and even converted big box stores from small third tier markets to large hundred plus thousand square foot facilities, we have seen it all. This is the podcast that we're going to discuss and bring on the best investors and operators in the nation to show you how to create wealth and income with self-storage. Welcome to Self-Storage Income. Welcome to Self-Storage Income, everybody. We are so excited because we're approaching the busy season in the storage industry. I don't know if you've noticed, but in some parts of the country, it's actually starting to warm up a little. And uh, as February will come to an end and we'll start to go into March, we start to see changes, changes in the wind. People start to move again. Houses begin to build up north. And the seasonality of self-storage really kicks in, particularly for us in the northern sections of the United States and the rest of the world throughout Europe and Canada. It's the harvest. And we work with our managers. Uh, We have a a monthly group webinar and uh, call, and it's one of the things that we start to focus on a lot this time of year, is that are we prepared to get our new tenants in? And uh, have we been laying the foundation through the spring, getting our reservations called back? Are we getting our delinquencies tidied up? Um, Collections? Are we getting all the inventory ready that should be ready and online in the coming months? uh, You don't want to miss the busy season. So, you know, we've been spending a lot of time on that. But something else we've spent a lot of time on lately We've had so many discussions with you guys. Uh, I was having calls last night, all last night till midnight, talks with uh, a bunch of people from the podcast that have uh, reached out. You guys have been so generous, giving us five-star reviews. Um, we're now the largest podcast on self-storage, and we thank you guys so much and our listeners um, uh, for that, and your feedback has been exceptional. Um, great conversations and as we discuss this me and uh uh, connor my co-host who's here with me as always hanging out dude Uh, i think probably the bulk of what we hear and uh, um, what we're getting the feedback from you guys is what's it worth so people are out you're starting to say i want to get into self-storage i'm in self-storage but I want to expand or even I want to sell my self-storage facility, what's it worth? This is, I mean, this is the crux of it, right? This is where people fail and succeed. And I think this is one of the advantages in self-storage. The people that are able to see that value and they are able to underwrite um, self-storage facilities really well can really outperform others and they can save themselves a lot of damage and a lot of time. It is a science and an art. It's both of those things. And we want to talk about today that question right there. 
what the heck is it worth? And there's reasons why this is not a simple question. I know that when you're in business school and, you know, when I got my MBA and things, and you, the teachers and the academics, they present economics like it's simple. And like it, it's not that it's simple, but like it's a science. Well, it's gravity. It just always happens that way. And that's not how economics work. Until it doesn't. Exactly. <laughs> and people don't work like that. And economics is driven so much by emotion. And you have to realize that the value of your facility is, I mean, when it comes down to it, what other people think that it's worth. Now, I am not a person that believes in EMT, efficient market theory. I believe that in the long run, right? I believe that the markets can efficiently price assets in a long-term scenario, but obviously we saw like in 2008 and things that efficient market theory doesn't work in the short term. The reason being is efficient market theory takes in assumptions that the market has all the perfect information, all parties have that information, all capital is accessible. It expects situations that don't exist in economics. So it can only be true in pricing assets in the long term. And when you look at self-storage and how self-storage assets are priced, and when you look and when we get into a discussion, and this is, you know, and the reason we have to talk about this, and I'm starting way back with human emotion, is we that's where you have to start. We have to start at the art of it. We get in the science. The science is easy, right? You guys can go and you guys can get your spreadsheets and get your numbers and everything, and that'll pop out a number. Whether that number is right or not depends on the inputs that you put in, depends on your expectations, and depends on you know, how the performance of that asset will take place and a whole range of different variables that need to be put into that. And when you're the buyer, not all buyers are going to agree on the worth of that facility. And that's really important to understand because an asset sold at a certain price doesn't mean it's worth that. And I, and I have a saying, I do not let real estate agents tell me what something's worth, and I do not let bankers tell me what I can afford. And the reason being is I don't believe that because the market says that an asset is worth that, that that's truly what it's worth. So then how do we determine this, right? When we're looking at a self-storage facility, how do we figure out what its real value is? First, let's go back to you yourself. Essentially, there's two driving factors when you deal with valuations and when you're dealing with what it's worth. First of all, the returns to the individual, okay? So your actual shareholder returns, whether it's you or lots of people, and then there's the other side of it that's the risk associated with those returns. Those are the two fundamental principles that you need to remember. And then what's acceptable along those two terms changes based upon the buyers. And the abilities that they have will change those things. So let me give you an example. Someone that's just starting out, a certain asset may be much riskier to someone that has infrastructure to run that asset at a certain level. So their price may be different. So one person may have a totally different concept of 
returns needed for an acceptable investment. So figuring out what it's worth is this interesting conversation that I have with people because there's so many dynamics and how we see it and how others see that valuation take place. And how people underwrite it is so interesting to me because it says more about the individuals than it says about the asset. And, uh, and I love having that conversation with self-storage investors is, um, you know, what's this worth? And they go through and they explain their thinking. They say what they see. And it shows the fears, the risks, and it shows the skills that they may have or the lack thereof to get certain returns and not. And it, you can see others that see holes and others that see opportunities. So I know you're sitting here going, AJ, that is not helpful in the least. In fact, what was clear is now muddy. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get there. We're going to walk through this, people. But, you know, I, I'm putting a little, a little hedge hedge on here and we're going to talk about it. Let's let's go back to the underlying uh, uh, two principles here that we have, which is return to shareholders and uh, um, risk to shareholders as our actual drivers of worth. Your overall value, there's an intrinsic value, you have a comparison value, and if a market's efficient, you have a price that'll sell at value, right? So what are other assets selling? What's it intrinsically worth and what's it produce, right? Um, and then what do the markets sell at? So there's these different ideas of valuation. And when I walk people through, there's different metrics you can use. So we could look at, let's say, an intrinsic value of what would it take to replace these buildings? So it's selling at $150 a square foot, but I could build it at $100 a square foot so somebody may say, it's not worth that because I can build it at 100 and you're selling it for 50% above that price. But then somebody else may say, yeah, but the revenue generated from it, if I buy it, will give me an exceptional return. And actually it's undervalued because of the return that I would get. So you can see those two thought processes at odds with each other in certain instances. And when you hear people say that markets are overvalued, right? What are you talking about? And we've had this question come up and people have asked me, well, you say the markets, you know, the certain markets are overvalued. When we're talking about that, I'm talking about supply demand issues. When we're looking at buying assets, I look at replacement cost, but I'm really looking at what the asset is more in comparison to the overall market. So I look at three different things. I look at the replacement cost, of course. I also look at the price that things are trading in the market. But then I look at all things being equal, okay? What would that asset's worth be? And when I say all things being equal, if all of the assets in a certain market were ran efficiently and well and rates were all priced accordingly, is there a value difference in that asset? Because value may come from you can't get as high returns because the asset looks bad and you have to put capital expenditures in it. So of course, I can't pay a higher amount because I have to put money into it because the physical nature of the asset needs improving. But lots of times there is a disconnect that the amount that needs to be put in is not equivalent to the discount that is given, right? That's an opportunity. 
Okay. There's also the opportunity and valuation of operations. So when I look at operations, when I look at the physical asset, when I see what other assets are performing in the market, I don't really care what they are when they sell. So what, what the market, once again, designates as its worth does not matter to me. When I look and see what the performance are in the market, its physical nature, what it takes to make things, all things equal, its replacement costs, and the operations efficiencies, when I look at all of those things, I look at the market and at the top of the market and what things are doing. And because I know I can compete at the top of the market, that's what that asset is worth, given the CapEx needed to get it to there. Then from there, I can usually see discounts. The problem is, though, I don't buy off the spread. I buy off existing performance. But if I say, you have a great asset on great land, the thing that is not performing here, though, is the management team. And what's not performing here is maybe you haven't kept up on the physical nature of the asset and it needs money put in. But overall, this asset should be worth in this marketplace $5 million dollars. But because of the nature of its cash flow, because we got to take this back just a little, cash flow, uh, you, you trade and storage facilities are valued off its cash flow. Okay. So I, I, I hope I didn't pass that up here. We started a little higher than right out of the gates. So storage facilities are generally in the market priced based upon cash flow that is generated from them. That's why we use things like cap rates as opposed to like housing, which housing is just traded based upon what the market will price it at. So if the asset then has cash flow, but it, those cash flows are inhibited by those activities, I could say that in a, in one circumstance, that would be 5 million based upon its current uh, today performance on a cap rate, even if that cap rate is in line with high performance assets, it's only worth 3 million, but you need another million to put into it, then there's a mil still a million dollar spread there for me. So when I'm looking at what they're worth, our model, this is not the same for everyone, okay? Other people have different strategies, but we focus on replacement cost. We focus on the overall returns of the facility, okay? Then we focus on operations. And we had a discussion. We were in, in a fight. Lar a bunch of large storage operators um, in an area were in a fight with a county. The county was taxing the storage facilities at what we thought was a ridiculous amount. And the fight is, what are these things worth? Now, that's a really interesting fight to have with a government entity because they're stating and the argument was that because one person sold at X square foot, all of you are worth that. And the argument against it was, well, we don't all perform at that level. So then this county wanted to know, okay, well, what degree of your value is attributed to the operations and what degree is attributed to the real estate. And I sat back and I thought about that. And I thought, that is an excellent question because we pushed it back on them. And we said, you don't go to McDonald's and say, well, McDonald's, your business is worth X, but the real estate's worth this. So no, it's the price of the real estate. 
but yet you are, because a, a, a storage facility sells at a cap rate and a high-performing storage facility sold at a really absurdly low cap rate, then you get a square foot taxable rate that may not be equal to the rest of the market. Why don't you do that with like a McDonald's? Right? That's the, that's the that's argument with the county. But their question led me and got my, my wheels spinning and thinking as everyone here is more confused now than we started this podcast. But this idea that there's a difference in value in the operational portion of self-storage and the assets itself. And that's how I look how we determine value, okay? So when we buy, we are essentially fully focusing on buying the asset, right? And what it takes and then the revenues that it delivers. But I'm trying to buy, then I look at the business side of the actual running of the business side. I'm trying to discount that. And so if I can say this is discounted, but the structure is good, I can change the business side and have the performance. Um, back to then how that helps you or how you should look at underwriting and valuing. This is, we're still focusing all on the returns in this. Then when we go to the other leg. So that's how I, I, I'm kind of looking and I hope guys, I really hope I'm not just rambling. I hope you're, this is lighting fires in your brain. And I hope you're saying, yes, I'm thinking this is helping me understand how I should approach this. It's a science and an art and I don't want to approach it like it. If it was simple, I'd put up the equation online and I'd just say, hey, guys, go check out the equation. Um, (laughs) Works for everybody. It works for everybody. But that's not how it's going to work, and that actually won't help you. If I can teach you how to look at it a different way, we can teach you how to find value and how to find what something is intrinsically worth versus what it's trading at. And so you don't buy things that are overpriced. And then you find deals and you find value, and you also change the value of your existing assets by improving them. That's what we're focusing on here. Now, the other side of this, though, that we look at is risk. This is a very important part of self-storage. Generally speaking, first-tier markets trade at lower cap rates than rule third-tier and fourth-tier markets. Why? That's because of risk. If I'm in downtown LA, the odds of it being oversupplied are extremely low because the city will not let more storage facility be built. It will not let more supply come onto the market. So I will be able to maintain high rates and then in return, maintain high revenues. So the returns to the shareholders are stabilized and secure, right? That's what it's, that's what we're talking about here. The risk in fourth tier markets is that anybody can build and there isn't enough demand in those markets to sustain a lot of inventory. So if somebody builds, my returns from that assets are now in jeopardy because I may not be able to hold on to my occupancy. Then the value of that space is now devalued because there's so much of it on the market that I have to lower my rates and try to fill up. I have to give discounts in return, my revenues and my returns drop and the value of the asset falls. So risk is an important part. When I'm looking at risk, that's how I judge how much I'm willing to pay if we're talking a cap rate, which 
We all know we've had this conversation on cap rates, but if there's a lot of risk, I'm not going to pay as much because I need a cushion to support the risk. So when I underwrite the value of that facility in my my returns outlook in my five years, if there's going to be more inventory on the market, there's going to be more risk. I can't in good conscience think that I'm going to maintain high returns to the shareholders, me, over that expended period of time. In fact, it's the opposite. There's many markets today that I look at and I say, no, there's an erosion of returns in the future. Returns aren't going to be stabilized and they're not going to increase. They're going to erode. So that asset is no longer worth as much. I hope these this, this is making sense in when you're underwriting assets. So we walked through last night two different assets and we were trying to understand the value and which ones you should buy and which ones you should not. This practice we went on one that you shouldn't buy. First of all, it was priced much higher than replacement cost. The returns of revenue on the price equaled a negative return for the individual and the upside was never enough to give you a good cash return to your investment and never brought you even close to replacement cost. There's huge risk in that. Obviously, you make no money, so returns are none. So it's priced too high, right? That's fairly basic, but that's how we were looking at this. The question was, was there a way that we could get it to be worth more? And this is what I like to say about that. I'm willing to pay, but when I buy something, it has to be a good buy at the time. I can't buy something and have it be a horrible buy and then have wish hopes and dreams that those returns are going to increase in the future and that someday it'll turn around. That's a horrible strategy. And now I'm gambling. I'm not attributing an actual value and I don't understand the worth of that asset. I'm just hoping and praying, which doesn't work. So when you go into a market, let's look at these assets. Let's look at the returns generated by the assets. Let's figure out this intrinsic value, okay? So what would it cost to replace it? Then let's look at the returns dried from the natural supply and demand in the market. Then let's look at operations and how they're performing. Is there a good manager? Do they have good system in places that will keep high returns and make high returns? Or are those lacking? I could come in and change those. But for existing, what are those? And then if I have to invest my capital at a 5% interest rate, what is my return going to be? And what is acceptable for me to receive that return? Then from there, you move on and look at how secure those returns are going to be. So for me, I need a 20% cash on cash return. I'm usually looking at assets that are close to their intrinsic value, but operations are failing. I can come in, I can turn those around, I can improve and stabilize lower the risk of the revenues, and I get my 20% cash on cash return. If I can achieve that, once again, let me be very clear. We don't get that 20% as in we hope and pray that it'll come in the future, but what is already existing. So that's already that kind of performance already exists in the marketplace today. I'm just bringing it up to a normal existing level. Then for me, I say, all right, what is the value of that asset? based upon today's revenue, I'd actually probably be willing to pay a little more for it because I know I have a buffer. I know that it's underperforming. I know there's good reasons. It's much more of a buy. If we're at the top of a market, 
The market's booming. Lots of people are building. New supplies coming on. And I'm buying a big, stable, what seems like a safe asset. That's actually worth less to me. Why? Because of risk. I can't maintain that performance. And I don't think I'm going to be able to maintain it as new inventory hits the market. So what in one person may seem like an asset that should be valued more to me is valued less because I don't have a margin of safety like Warren Buffett calls it, right? I need a good, healthy return to protect me through changes in market cycles. And if there's an asset that's already at the top of the market and the operations are amazing and it's leading the market, I have nowhere else to go with it and I'm buying it at a low, if you're buying that thing at a four cap, right? Unless I think there's no risk in it. And so I'm buying it like a bond and it's just going to pay me a small amount, a small return. I'm getting an eight, 9% return and I'm okay with that. Well, that's fine. Then do it. That's great, right? I need, but for me, I'm running a business. It's me. I got operations. I need a higher return. And in markets where that exists and where you see that, those are markets where there's very little risk. We see that in New York. You see that in LA. You see that in Seattle, where they go, I'll pay a four cap because I know that in 10 years, it's going to be worth more. We can get rate increases. And there's no risk of other people flooding the market because it's not allowed. That's why those trade at low cap rates. But if you're comparing New York to nowhere Alabama, then the risk ratio the quality of those revenues have now changed. The price needs to reflect that. And lots of times when you're going into smaller markets, they don't see that. They're like, oh, self-storages are now worth five caps. And you're like, well, where? And they're like, yeah, I read in ISS or SSA that, you know, so-and-so out of LA just sold it for a four cap. National average. National is average is that, you know, and you're <laughs> like, well, you are not national average. So that's where the risk comes in and markets dictate the risk. These are the two things when understanding the value of that asset that you need to play with. You need to play with your returns, where those returns come from. Are you looking at intrinsic value? Are you looking at what those future revenues will hold? And then how secure those future revenues are, right? Value and price are not the same. And value is something that is perceived, right? We need to understand that. That's why in high markets, when good times are rolling, everything's priced more because their value is perceived to be more, right? In downturn, you get discrepancies where all of a sudden you have assets that are trading below their intrinsic value or their replacement cost. I mean, we bought assets that were pennies on the dollar, like we couldn't have built them for a fraction of the cost we bought them for. That doesn't make sense. But nobody viewed their value at that time because everyone was scared. So the perceived value was extremely low because they thought the future benefits were nothing. So holding it was worse than getting rid of it, which we disagreed. We think the world was going to turn around, that things were going to get better. And at the least, it should be priced at its intrinsic value. And so that, in lots of instances, can switch. You need to be careful on which side of your coin you are because you're looking at the future benefits of that asset 
the future risk. So the return to shareholders, the future risk. And two, some people you need to realize that the perceived value may not be monetary. And I know that's strange if that's what you're focusing on as business, but some people may be buying this for lifestyle choices. Maybe they want to live there and operate it. So they're willing to pay more because they don't need to make a return for shareholders. They just need a job and they need something to put their retirement money. There's other reasons that people buy things. They need a 1031 exchange and that price is better than paying the taxes. And you're like, you're not going to get a return. And they're like, yeah, but I'm not going to lose money. And so its perceived value is higher to them than you. That's okay. Let them buy it. You walk away and you go find value. Don't assume because somebody bought it at X price that that's what the value is. Value is based upon you, what you need, what you want, what you're going to get out of it, and the risk associated with you. It's perceived. And that's different from everyone. That's different for everyone. We looked at an asset last night as we were underwriting it with one of the guys in my inner circle. It's 11.30 at night. We're going through an asset in Texas. And I was like, you know what? I think you should. I think this asset is of good value and it's a good buy. You shouldn't do it because it's not for you. That is very different. And we walked through why that wasn't for him. When you included the turnaround cost for him, the management, the trips he'd have to take, he lived far away, all of that, we actually inputted that in the numbers, the returns lowered, plus the risk of him not knowing it was his first deal, those, the unknown future of those revenue flows and not being able to manage it and not understanding the area, it all of a sudden became not a good deal. Now, if that was in his backyard, I probably would have said buy it right now, but the risk changed. So value is different, but you have to have a value-centric strategy. So understanding the value of the assets you're purchasing based upon you, not the market. Don't let other people tell you what you should buy assets at. You need to underwrite assets according with you. And this is how you create a successful strategy because I underwrite it and then I say, this is what I'm willing to pay for it. Or I also immediately know whether I should buy it or walk away from it. Too many times you don't know. Should I just buy it because investing's good? Should I walk away from it? This takes time and practice, and you have to refine it as you go. And times, markets change, you change, your position changes, your underwriting needs to change. We are still changing our underwriting practices. And I'm going to use this as my last story because I think it's really important to understand value and to understand what it's worth, and then we're going to stop this utter rambling and confusion that I'm going on. It's all uh, good info, AJ. Right. It's okay. It's good. So it's good. we had a facility that was a value-add facility, and we walked away from it. This was four, five years ago. I turned around three, four years later, and I bought it. I paid over a million more by the same seller's, the same facility, the same revenue. Nothing had changed. What had changed was me. I should not have gone back and bought it. I'm not saying that I made a mistake because I didn't. I should not have bought it. I couldn't underwrite it properly. I didn't know. It was too much risk. And then four years later, we'd operated more facilities. I had a good foundation. I had a team around me that could execute on a turnaround at that scale. I went, it was a million more, but the value was still there. So we bought it. I overpaid a million. 
but I didn't overpay. It was right for me. And if you understand that, that makes a big difference. That perceived value, what it was originally very scary to me and a deal I couldn't do, three years later at a higher price was a deal that I could do and I did. That doesn't mean I should have gone back and done the deal. I wasn't ready for it. It, it, I couldn't underwrite it properly. I didn't understand the value of it. And the reason was because of the risk of the future revenue, everything that needed to be done was so complicated in this large facility. And then as I got better, I underwrote it efficiently. I understood the value of it. I could capitalize on it. It's a great deal. Going to be a great investment. So I just wanted to leave that with you that not all deals are for you. That's okay. Find the right deals that you can underwrite. You can see the clear value that have manageable, not no risk, manageable risks and the returns that are appropriate for your strategy. Does that make sense, man? 100%, dude. I think you've covered a lot of really, really good information on what value is exactly and how just the subjective nature of value and what it is to you and your style and your intentions and your goals and everything else. It's not this one size fits all strategy or concept or anything else. It is solely subjective and it is what you make it, period. And uh, I think you've covered a lot of really, really good info as, as to why that is and everything else, man. I mean, it's good yeah. work. Good work. I have nothing, nothing to add. All right, man. Once again, we always ask, this is helpful. Your feedback is essential to this podcast, essential to our content. Five-star reviews, guys. Give us a good review. We put a lot of time and effort into this and and, and cost. Um, it, it, it cost me money out of my pocket to do all this, and we love it. We love doing it. This is a blast. I think it creates ex- exceptional value in the marketplace and opportunity, and we hope that you guys seeing our mistakes and our successes and what we're learning along the way is helping you. If so, give us a good rating, and thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. 